Hello, and welcome to PW's FaithCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors who write about inspiration, spirituality, and religion. I'm Emma Wenner, Religion News Editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Joanne Cacciatore, whose book, Bearing the Unbearable, is being published by Wisdom Press, the sponsor of today's FaithCast. Hello, Joanne. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? Hi, Emma. I'm I'm doing very good. It's very busy with the release of the book, and so uh, it's exciting. That's great. Uh, you're getting ready to go out on tour, right? I am. I will be in uh, quite a number of cities in the next seven weeks. That's fabulous. So my first question for you has to do with the experience with your daughter, Cheyenne, and how it ultimately led to the writing of this book. Can you describe that experience? Oh, wow. So yeah, so this is 23 years ago. Uh, next month in July, it'll be 23 years. Uh, and so a lot's happened in 23 years. So she was my fourth child. Um, she died very suddenly and unexpectedly as a baby. And I was catapulted into a very, very dark, dark place, which was made even darker and colder by the lack of social support in my immediate circle. And, uh, at the macro level was, I think, intensified by the, strange relationship that we have with grief in our culture. So since then, I went back to school and I finished my doctorate. I got a PhD at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I got a tenure track position, obtained tenure from Arizona State University in 2015, 14, excuse me, in 2014, got tenure so I'm a key researcher in the field as well as a clinician. And so I work with families uh, whose children are dying or have died. And I've been doing that work for 20 years. Wow. Wow. What an experience. And in the book, you compare grief to sometimes what you can see in people's backyards. You write, for many, grief feels like something that can be relegated to junk status, exiled to the backyard where it is inaccessible, unimportant, and no longer exerting influence. Why do you think that this happens so often? I, I mean, I think in general, I call it in the book, I call it the happiness cult of American culture and, 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 and even some other Western cultures. I, I think that there's this belief that we're entitled to be happy all the time. And so we crave happiness. In fact, it's ensconced in our constitution, the pursuit of happiness, right? Yeah. And so we pursue and pursue and seek happiness and, that comes at a cost to our emotions that are not happy emotions, typically. That comes at a cost to our emotions that might include grief, despair, rage, uh, confusion, loneliness, you know, guilt, shame, sadness, you know, all of those emotions that we, that we don't consider quote good emotions. So we relegate them to the backyard. Right. We push them away where they're not seen, but they're still there. And therein lies the problem. We haven't really integrated those. And so we begin to fragment very authentic, albeit painful pieces of ourselves. And then we present to the world as only parts of, of ourselves. We're not our authentic selves when we have fragmented, when we have not been or become integrated whole human beings, which includes some of those painful emotions. Right, right. 
And so you, you do, you talk about the happiness culture and the cult of it and the grief denying structures of society. And why, why, how, how or why did these structures come about and, and why are people so uncomfortable with grief in your opinion? Well, how it came about, really, I mean, we have, in America anyway, we have really institutionalized both birth and death. And that happened at about the same time in history. There was a time when birth and death took place in people's homes. Uh, women often accompanied other women in birth, and families accompanied the dead. They took care of their own dead. They did their hair. They washed their bodies. People were laid out on their family land, buried on their family land, and it wasn't as sanitized and emotionally, psychologically sanitized as it is today. And in today's world, we sort of hand off our dead to a, to a funeral director or mortuary scientist somewhere, and then we visit, you know, for three hours <laughs> on day one, and maybe you can get some time to touch and see and hold your loved one. Maybe you're if you're fortunate, you get to do your mother's hair if you want to. Um, but in general, we we have very little contact with our dead. And it's even worse without with people who are grieving. I mean, at work, you get three days bereavement leave. On average, on average, three days bereavement leave. I've written um, journal articles about this. People tend to not want to make anyone cry because we're not comfortable when people cry. When people cry, the first thing we do is grab a Kleenex and hand it to the person who's crying. And there's an implicit message when you hand someone a Kleenex. Clean it up. Stop crying. Stop crying. Right? And and so we, we want to make people who are crying feel better because we're not comfortable with the expression of that pain. And I think that it's been sort of a slow evolutionary process. And the social structures in place support that. So part of my critique has been around religious structures that, you know, support this idea you know, if you're, you know, you, you just give it to God as if you can just give your emotions to God. Why? Yeah. I mean, if God exists and God gave you those emotions, why shouldn't you keep them? And so there's, there's this implicit and sometimes explicit message in academic institutions, in religious institutions, in social institutions, that grief is something that we are we are to overcome, we're to heal from it, we're to, um, you know, to make it better, to make it go away, to assuage it, to comfort it. And, and not that comforting grief is a bad thing per se, but if we're comforting it so that we can overcome it, so that we can manage it, so that we can beat it, so that we don't have to feel it again, I invite people to consider the postulation that there are some grief experiences that are not, that are not, cannot, and should not be overcome. I see, yeah. So why do you think some people are more afraid of death than others? So I think my sense is that we're, when we're talking about death and grief, we have to separate them out because death is different from grief. There's an overlap. It would be a Venn diagram. So why are some people afraid of death or dying? I mean, that's a complicated question. Um, my sense is the uncertainty of what happens to us when we die can be terrifying for people. I mean, religion provides some of those answers. And yet, if we're being honest, in most people, even very religious, devoutly religious people, there's always a question of, am I right? Right. 
And so I think to a certain degree, the uncertainty of what happens when we die is a terror that fills us all, even if it's in the background. Now, grief, why do some people fear grief? Well, it's a strong emotion and we are, again, it's a, it's an emotion that many people perceive as negative and something to be overcome rather than integrated. And so that anytime we're afraid of something, anytime something is perceived as a negative, we try to avoid it, don't we? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And so our inclination as, as a culture, as a social culture is someone's grieving, someone's crying, take them to the movies and ha help them feel better. Open a bottle of wine to numb the pain. Um, you know, run to the, if gambling is your thing, run to the casino. If, if, uh, drugs are your thing, take a drug. If TV's your thing that helps you numb out, turn the TV on. If food is your thing, grab a bag of chips or a chocolate cupcake, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And, and kind of get that person to move on or get yes, over yes. it type of thing. Like right. To, in a sense, prematurely detach from that emotional experience that they're having in this moment. Yeah. And so the book, uh, kind of affirms that a lot of people who have lost a loved one, they find comfort in sightings. And this could be a combination of numbers or it could be butterflies and uh, any reminders of the person that they've lost. What do you think that these experiences are? Yeah, they are to each person, whatever they are to that person, right? I mean, I think, uh, I think most of the families with whom I've worked for the past two decades, uh, it is a message to them, some kind of message that gets interpreted, you know, in whatever way has meaning for them at that particular moment in time. Um, it, it is profound for them, for sure. It can be transformative. And some of them really, I mean, the likelihood of some of these experiences, I call them extraordinary perceptual experiences, the extraordinary and unlikely, statistically unlikely nature of them makes them hard to call just chance or coincidence. Yeah. It's profound. I've seen it over and over. You're saying there's absolutely no judgment there that people are allowed to interpret whatever it is that they would like. Yeah. To, it to that's be. my experience with them. My experience with them is, you know, someone comes to me and says, Hey, you know, this happened today. Um, what do you think? And my question is, what does it feel like to you? Go inside your heart. What does it mean to you? Get, go stay with that experience. Let's meditate on that experience. And what is that experience bringing to your heart? Yeah, that's great. Um, and then, uh, one of the messages in the book that came across pretty clearly to me is you explore how grief changes a person and in, in a certain way changes them for the better, even though the experience is, is obviously heartbreaking and terrible, you grow and you change forever. And you write that you're a better person for having known your daughter, Cheyenne. Um, can you talk about in which ways did you, did you change for the better? Yeah. Yeah. First, I think it's very important to say one thing. I don't, I didn't ask for the change. I don't want the change. It's if I could give it all back to have her, I would. And I think that's the most important piece because sometimes our culture tends to use that as a reason that a, that a, that, you know, that a three-year-old gets cancer and dies or that a, that a 16-year-old is killed in a car accident or that a, 
that a 21 year old is murdered. I mean, there's no, there's no, no justifying it. There's no good that's good enough to justify the loss. And so first I need to say that. Secondly, yeah, for sure, without a doubt, unequivocally, my child has made me a better and more compassionate and more circumspect human being. And my heart shattered into a million pieces and moved into the world and every opportunity I get to make the world better because of her is my way of bringing her love into the world. Wow. Yeah. And if we could all do that, whatever the suffering is, because we all suffer, suffering is a common human experience. And so if we can all stay with our suffering long enough to and go into the center of it to help it transform us, to allow it to transform us, to give it the time and the patience that it needs to become a transformative, even transfiguring experience, then, then I, because I believe that people who suffer are the ones who can change the world, are the peace bringers, are the, you know, are the love bringers, the compassion bringers. Suffering does usually one of two things. It shuts us down and hardens our hearts because we become so fearful and so terrified and so angry and so despairing that we detach and disconnect or it shatters our heart open into the world in a way of compassion. In fact, the world, the word compassion comes from the root calm, which means with and passion actually comes from a root word that means suffering. So the word compassion literally means with suffering, to suffer with. Oh, wow. And so if we can stay with our suffering, if we can stay with our pain long enough, that pain can actually be, be transformed into compassion and not a passive compassion, a kind of fierce compassion that has the energy of grief, has that, that same intensity that grief has. And really can transform while it transforms us from the inside, then that transformation can happen outside of us in the, in the exogenous state to everything around us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And, um, I, I have one last question for you and I think it's an important one. Um, what advice do you have for people who know a loved one that is struggling with grief and how can they help? Yeah. So, um, I always, I, what the number one thing I tell people is, you know, love and gentleness, love people and be gentle with them and get my book, (laughs) read the book because it helps you understand from the inside. If you haven't had a dark night of the soul, if you haven't lost someone that you would have in a moment given your life for, if you haven't experienced that, it's very hard to understand it from the outside. So I invite people to take a step toward understanding it from the inside, read about it from a phenomenological perspective, which the book does. And the book is a really wonderful invitation toward understanding from the inside. I think once we start understanding from the inside, everything changes in our relationships to, in our relationship with and to others. And we become less fearful. We act in love, not fear in that way. Yeah. Well, I think that's excellent advice. And I thank you so much for joining us, Joanne. And also thank you to the audience for listening. And please join us for the next Faithcast.